0: You know, as we quote-unquote transition back to normal, I'm not sure if I'm gonna stop wearing these masks. I kind of like these. Because there was a point in time where, there's a point in time where if you wore a mask like this, it would be a problem. But now I just, I, just, uh, I just enjoy not looking at faces now. Gotten used to it. So Now it's just different. You see people wearing masks all the time, and you just kind of have a perception of how they look. And then they take their masks off, and they look totally different. It's so fascinating how from here on up, you can look one way, and here on down, it'll be different. So I, I don't know. I'm thinking about keeping mine. I might, though. I fit too many descriptions, though, so I might not. All right, well, glad to see so many here this morning. It's hot outside, and so the AC will be up in here. I know y'all are sitting, and uh, you get to chill and, and react slowly. I don't know why I'm wearing a black shirt, but it's just what it is. I do this all summer, and then I regret it afterwards when I walk to my car. But we are going to continue in our series in Romans. When we left last week, previously at Solid Rock, We were talking about a series of questions that Paul was asking to make a point about the believer's relationship with God. It was the end of Romans 8, and we ended at verse 34. We're asking a bunch of questions to to make sure that, that the Christian, the genuine Christian, understands from God's perspective. We have to always remember that whenever we are reading the Bible or you're hearing the Bible talk, hopefully, At least when you're reading it, it's from God's perspective. Every verse, every word is what God wanted his people to know so that they could be encouraged. Hopefully the actual message is accurate to what God wanted communicated. So then that becomes from God as well. But Paul is asking a series of questions at the end of Romans 8 to make sure that the believer has confidence in their relationship with God because God knows above everyone else that the one thing that believers lack the most is confidence in their relationship with God. So, as he's asking these questions, the, the questions kind of get Bigger and bigger, and they get more profound. And he wants the believer as he's going through these questions to really see the magnitude from God's perspective of how he sees us. Because if we're honest, the biggest thing we struggle with is how we believe that God sees us. We know this is God's word. We believe that intellectually. But when it comes down to it actually communicating from God what he thinks about us, we can disagree with God himself. And so as the questions get bigger and bigger and bigger we get to Romans 8:35 where Paul says who can separate us from the love of Christ and then he names a couple of things that often separate us from the love of Christ He says who can separate us from the love of Christ And then he says, can affliction, affliction, pain, physical, emotional, spiritual pain. Affliction is a form of suffering that is intense and strong. The Bible talks about Jesus being afflicted for our transgressions. He says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Going directly at where most people struggle. All of the Psalms that cry out to God are crying out because they're in circumstances that they don't like and they're wondering where God is. And you hear phrases like, How long, O Lord? Where are you, Lord? Even on the cross, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He can almost be saying, why are you afflicting me? So he says, can affliction separate us from the love of Christ? Or distress? It may not be affliction, the most intense thing you're going through, but it may be a challenge. Distress. Distress. Simple things just pop up, distress, simple. Didn't see it coming, and here we go. I got an email Thursday from the place that we live that says, hey, we rent. Donors want to sell the property, need you out by July 31st. Got this on Thursday. Thanks for letting us know. We'll get back to you. Just like that. Distress. Just like that. Why is he using these categories? Because often when affliction comes or distress comes and we know that God is sovereign, we tend to think, what did I do to deserve this? Why are you doing this? We never think first, okay, God, how are you wanting me to trust you more because of this? We go to, why is this happening? Now, to you, that might not seem like a big deal. Okay, you got to move. Well, be in my shoes. Be in anyone's shoes who's going through distress. It's always easier to tell someone to get over it when you're not the one under it. So we ask, can affliction, can distress, can persecution? This is important because we tend to think that God somehow... Promises to not let us be persecuted or experience the categories that he's listing. Even though verses like 2 Timothy 3.12 say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You see what he's saying? Persecution is for those who want to live godly. He says, well, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword these are all things that will make the most solid Christian, the most solid believer in Jesus, question if he actually loves him. We see it in places like John the Baptist. Go ask him, is he really the Messiah? Are we waiting for somebody else? John the Baptist is asking that? Then he quotes, as it is written in verse 36, because of you, we are being put to death all the day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. He's recognizing and quoting even from the Old Testament that there is the idea that the suffering, that the sheep to be slaughtered, that all of this is a part of the people who are going to live for the glory of God, whom God loves. But we tend to think love protects us from suffering because that's what we would do. You see, we typically, when we love someone, we want to protect them from suffering. We rarely think, ah, this is for your good. In some situations, of course. I've had friends that have been hooked on drugs and have had to go to rehab. And they're like, no, I don't want to. And it's like, no, this is for your good, man. You need this. But for the most part, we tend to try to prevent people from suffering. Because we love them and we care about them. What if that's actually not love and care? Because from God's perspective, sometimes you've got you to go through this to trust the Lord. That doesn't mean we don't help, we don't try to assist. Of course we do. But we have to understand that sometimes the way we process the world is not the way God does He says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is what he's saying. We're more than conquerors. We're actually more than people who just persevere to the end and make it. We talk about persevering to the end. Revelation in some of the letters to the seven churches. Jesus is saying, but to those who conquer. Who make it not flawlessly, But persistently. But he says, "You're more than conquerors. We're more, from God's perspective, we are more than just people who are just going to persevere to the end and just try to hold on to their faith. He says, "We're more than conquerors. Why? Because it's through Him who loved us. God sees us as more than conquerors. He sees us as sons and daughters. And then Paul concludes saying, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, rulers is talking about demons, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's he's leading us to the conclusion that all of the things that we will experience in this life that would be good for us, but not good to us, he says, these don't separate you from the love of God. In other words, Do not evaluate your relationship with God solely on the circumstances that you're in. Because when you do, your relationship with God is only as good as what he does that's good to you. And suffering is not good to us. It's good for us. No one wants to go through the majority of things that we go through. I mean, we don't even want our Wi-Fi to be buffering. <laughs> you know how to say first world problems? You want your why wi- not working. Verizon is slow. You get a text saying, oh, we got a notification that your Verizon is out in your neighborhood. Someone will be out there today. And 10 hours later, you struggling. <laughs> the world is a dark place. Then you start thinking, man, what's the Lord doing? Maybe I need to read more. (laughs) Need to open a problem. If any of you fast and pray because of your Wi-Fi, don't come here anymore. I don't want to hear none of that. (laughs) That is not the suffering the Lord is concerned with. But you know what's funny? It's little things like that. Little things like that that we'll laugh at now that will make us be tempted that the Lord is allowing it to happen. Those little things that are funny in a message are not funny in the moments that it's happening. We cannot measure God's love solely on the difficult circumstances we experience. Unless we're going to evaluate them based on, Lord, what are you trying to show me? How can I grow as a result of this? Okay, Lord, what does it look like? Okay, I have to trust you now. We got to move. What does this look like? There's a number of things that have to happen now. What does that look like? Someone I care about is dying. What does that look like? This relationship is over. What does that look like? What do I do? How do I learn from this? I'm trying to disciple people. And they continue to pursue sinful lifestyles. Okay, Lord, what are you doing here? I'm trying to train my children, and it's difficult. All right, Lord, what are you, how am I, how am I supposed to grow from this? If we evaluate, God's these circumstances like that, that's healthy. But if we start wondering, why is this happening? It's human. It's Psalms, right? You've heard me say this before. Complaining about God is a sin, is a sin. Complaining to God is a song. Bring it to him. Paul finishes Romans 8 with a strong exhortation that nothing can separate us from the love of God and there becomes a tonal and theological shift when we get to Romans 9. There's a different tone in Romans 9, a different emphasis, a different shift. You may not notice it just by the words, but but the tone of the book, the theology of the book is now shifting. Paul's going from talking about the grandiose reality of those who belong to Christ to now specifying his concern and the people's concern for the nation of Israel as it relates to their relationship with God. And Paul, being an Israelite, he has some concerns And he begins to speak them, beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. And he says this to them. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. This is a switch in emphasis and tone. Paul is bringing up something that in this church many would be concerned with. This was a largely non-Jewish church for the first five years, and then Jews were allowed back in Rome, and now you have Jews coming into this church, and now it's diverse with non-Jewish people, Gentiles and Jewish people, and they're all trying to live under this new theology, but there are questions, there's going to be challenges, because if you're from Israel, you are a descendant of Abraham, and you are the, the truth of God's people, and if you're not Jewish, you're thinking, well, we believe in Jesus Christ, and so we're also that, and so now there is, without even trying to, a theological problem. Because if you're a Jew, you're a descendant of Abraham. You're one of God's people. But then there's this, well, but there's a new message now. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you're not one of God's people. Well, yes, we are because we're descendants of Abraham. Well, no, you're not unless you believe in Jesus. So who are the, who is God's people? You see, the, the theology is, is shifted. There's a different tone now. And Paul needs to address this issue one because it's possible that it's causing some conflict in the church but two because it's important to understand what's happening as it relates to the Jewish people and there are three aspects to what Paul says in these in these eight verses the first aspect is he highlights his anguish look at verses 1 through 3 and i i speak the truth in Christ i am not lying My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from the Christ, from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. And Let me say this. Paul rarely ever uses the phrase, I am not lying. Rarely ever does Paul say, I am not lying. Rarely does he say that. Because no one is assuming that Paul would be lying, writing on behalf of God. No one's reading this like, man, this dude, man. Yeah, right, Paul. I mean, of course there are gonna be people that think like that, right? It's rivals, right? But but the main the genuine Christians are not reading this thinking there's any lies in Paul, but he emphasizes that he is not lying. It's not because Paul thinks people there may think I'm lying, but Paul wants people to understand that what he is about to say is truthful. It's almost when Jesus would say, Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus wanted to make sure you understood when I say truly, truly, or verily, verily, that meant that repetition meant, okay, what I'm about to say is really serious. Pay attention. Jesus doesn't have to say truly, truly. to makes sure me like, oh, listen, he said truly twice. <laughs> he didn't have to say any of that, but he communicated that to say, listen, what I am about to say is serious. So Paul says, listen, I am not lying. And he says, my conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit, That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish I could. I wish I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters. This is what he's saying to me. Listen to what I'm about to say. The Holy Spirit confirms to me that what I'm about to say is the truth. Is that I wish that I would go to hell instead of my brothers and sisters. That's a serious statement. But Paul is operating in the the prophetic vein like, like Moses. This is not unusual for people who have the particular prophetic responsibility to talk like this. In fact, Moses in Exodus 32, this is after the Israelites made the golden calf. And God is going to punish them. Here's what Moses says to God in Exodus 32, verses 31 and 32. Here's what he says to Moses, to God. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. So you see, Moses is saying the same thing. Paul is speaking in the same vein that, listen, you've, I love these people and you've given me responsibility for these people. And if you're not going to forgive these people, then count me as those not forgiven. I don't want to participate in the forgiveness unless these people get to participate in the forgiveness. In other words, I would go to hell for their sake. I am not mature enough to say that. Especially. Outside of my immediate family. I would for them. But I wouldn't for any of you. And you wouldn't for me. Because to consider the eternal torment and the wrath of God instead of other people. You have to be so mature and so like Christ that you would actually want to imitate the same thing that Christ did. Because Christ said, I will take the punishment for these people. This is a serious tonal shift. Now, Paul doesn't clearly say how his conscience testifies that he's telling the truth. But I would imagine that the spirit has confirmed to him by a strong sense that Paul's desire to go to hell instead of them is real. There was probably lots of praying and wrestling. I mean, we know that Paul would go into the synagogue and debate with Jewish people often and just and cry out to them. Like, don't you see That the scriptures show that this is the Messiah? Don't you see this is the one we've been waiting for? The reality, though, is this. Paul is also not mature enough to take on the punishment for other people. Only Jesus could do that. Paul is not sinless enough. He's not perfect enough to be able to do that. So Paul is not speaking a theological reality that I want to trade places with you. He is speaking from an emotional capacity. This is how I feel. But this can't happen. Because no one can atone for anyone's sins if you've committed any of them. At least not to God. This is not a theological possibility, it's an emotional reality. Now, here's the reason for his anguish. What's the reason for the anguish? Why are they cut off? The Gospel of John in chapter 12 gives us the reality of this. This is what it says, beginning in verse 37. It says, even though he had performed, he being Jesus, spoiler alert, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. Now listen to this. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, who said, who has believed our message? And to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. You see the tonal, the theological shift? Wait a minute. I thought all this time God is... Saving and loves and he's bringing us to him and we're to celebrate that and to gather together. Now you're telling me that he intentionally is blinding people from believing? These are God's words, quoting from Isaiah. The New Testament writer John is understanding through the Holy Spirit that God is, that it is, also a fulfillment of scripture for people to see Jesus, hear him and still not believe. Wow. Why would he blind their eyes from seeing? This is a prophetic curse from Isaiah. Listed in Isaiah 52, 13 and in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. The Jews' unbelief is part of the fulfillment of Scripture. So what is happening? Well, many of you know the Old Testament, but in a a couple sentences, here's the narrative. God saves. He tells you how to live. And they disobey God. And then he punishes. They cry out. God saves. He tells them how to live. They disobey God, and he punishes. They cry out. God saves. He tells them how to live. They disobey God, and he punishes. And then Christ comes. He says, all right, enough of this back and forth. Enough of this. Christ do it. Obey perfectly. Die perfectly. Rise perfectly. Forgive perfectly. However, as part of the judgment from God for hardening their hearts all this time, God essentially says, what you have done on your own, I'm going to allow to continue, even in the face of the one that you've been waiting for. Theologically, they call this penal blindness, whereas a punishment for the disobedience for generations. God is saying, okay, it's almost like Romans 1. Since you don't recognize who God is, then I'm going to let you keep going in that. This makes a stark statement that God is the only one who saves And despite the contemporary language of I chose God, you did not. God chose you. Because if God blinds the heart. Now, listen, some people think, oh, my gosh, how could he do that? But God knows all possibilities. He knows all things. God is not blinding the heart of people who really want to believe in him. That's not the kind of God that we serve. I really want to believe in Jesus. Nah, nope. I don't like you. God blinds the heart of people who have blinded their heart to God. Like what, what did God do wrong when they created the golden calf in Exodus 32? What did he do wrong? He saves them. He provides for them. He feeds them. And what? Because Moses has gone too long? That's what they say. Look at, read Exodus, not right now, but read Exodus 32, the first four verses. Moses has gone too long, and they're like, man, forget this dude. <laughs> See, you to tell me when I come back from sabbatical, y'all like, Kurt, you're not pastor no more. You was gone too long. <laughs> That's all the work I put in. Like, okay, all right. I'm going to remember that. Remember that. Call a couple of old gangsters I know and be like, hey, meet me to the church. I'm just joking. <laughs> now you're going to see what you really believe, huh? God doesn't blind people's hearts who love him. When, when the Babylonians came and took Daniel in the book of Daniel, you saw Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego still wanting to glorify God even though they were taken into captivity. You had prophets that were preaching about God while they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. God doesn't blind the heart of people who love him. He blinds the heart of people who don't care. And so over time, that blinded heart becomes the reality for many people. So when Jesus comes, that's why he says, my sheep know my voice. The people who are looking for me that love God, they're going to respond to what I say. And the people who don't, they're going to see it and not even believe it. This is why he stood in front of the Sanhedrin and said, you've heard me preach in the open the whole time. If you don't believe in what I'm saying, believe in the miracles that you see. When he healed a man born blind, people said he was a demon. He was like, what in the world are y'all talking about? There were times where the scripture says that Jesus was marveled at their lack of faith. You know why? Because to be a full human being, he had to not know how people would respond. And when he did some of these miracles and people still didn't believe, he was like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) I brought somebody back from the dead. Like what demons are doing that? What demons are healing people? What demons are casting themselves out of other people? What demons are feeding 12,000 people with five loaves and two fish? What demons are walking on water and calming the sea? What demons are doing the things that I'm doing and you still don't believe it? God doesn't make people not believe. He allows people to continue in the unbelief they already have. And Paul recognizes this. He recognizes this. You notice, and you'll see this in a moment, his anguish is not at God. Paul's not angry at God. Here's proof of this. Look at, look at, look at what he goes to next. So that's his, that's his anguish. Let's look at verses 4 and 5, his ancestry. This is the, other, the, the second aspect, his ancestry. He says, look, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ who was God over all, praised forever. Amen. Paul lists all these different things. This is so, remember in Romans 3, this is similar. Paul is developing his argument from Romans 3. Remember Romans 3 1 and 2. Here's what Paul addresses. He says this. After he talks about circumcision, see, Paul's claim is this. You are not a Jew because you are from Abraham and were circumcised. You're descendants of Abraham. He said those who are really the children of God are those who believe in the message of God from the Old Testament to the New. So if from God's perspective, if you believed what God said in the Old Testament, it was the same as you believing in Jesus in the New Testament. It was believing in the message of God. In the New Testament, the message of God is coming by way of his son. God isn't going to appear in a cloud or in thunderstorm on Mount Sinai. God's not going to send all these different prophets. This is the final prophet. The message of God is coming. Now, believe in him is the same thing as believing in me throughout history. It's the same gospel. You believe in God. Galatians 3. Says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. And the quote was, You will be, your, your, your offspring will be many. He didn't say, Oh, he's going to die on the cross, his name is Jesus. He didn't say any of that. And Abraham believed that message. He believed the gospel that was given to him. Now this gospel is Jesus saying, believe in me. And Paul is saying, look, the Jews have rejected that. So in Romans 3, he gives this argument. So what advantage does a Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Verse 2, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. Well, in this particular passage, he, he goes a step further. And he breaks down all of the reasons why the Jews, more than anyone else, not only should be believers, but should be grateful and he goes through this list. and But he's getting to a point. Paul's not saying every Jew is going to be saved. But he's saying when you look at all that has been given to the Jews, how could any of them not want to be? He goes through this list. He says first, he said the Israelites, they are, the, they are Israelites. They're Israelites. That means that God chose them out of all the people that existed. He didn't choose the Chaldeans or the Assyrians or the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians. He didn't choose the Amalekites. He didn't choose the Jebusites or the Cushites. He chose the Israelites. God decided to create a people from one man, Abraham, and said, I am going to be their God. Specifically, this group of people is where all things are going to begin in terms of my redemption. My forgiveness for of humanity is going to begin with this nation of people, the Israelites, not anyone else. He said to them belong the adoption. God is the first. The Israelites were the first people for God to say, call Israel his son. Hebrews 11, one, out of Egypt, I called my son. He said the glory of. The Israelites have been given the glory from Moses asking God, let me see your glory. And God's saying, you can't see my face because you'll die. But I'll let you see my back. So he hides Moses and then walks past and then Moses sees the back of God. Moses comes down from the mountain with his face shining. The people saw the glory of God. When he led them through the night of the pillar of fire and through the day is a cloud. They saw the glory. Those people, the Israelites, God said, I'm going to let this people see my glory. The covenants, God made a, a contractual agreements with this group of people, not anyone else. Abraham, the covenant. Moses had a covenant. David, 2 Samuel 7, a covenant. That's a contractual agreement that I will do this for you and you do this in return. God makes covenants, promises. God doesn't have to promise anything to anyone. You know what's amazing to me is that a lot of Christianity is measured, we call it trusting God, which is so ironic because the reality is we should be showing God that he can trust us. All this talk about trusting God, like as if he's untrustworthy. We're the untrustworthy ones. We need to be like Isaiah 6 when he said, Lord, send me, let me do it. Let me be the one. Let me do that. We sit up here talking about trusting the trustworthy one. The giving of the law. He said, look, this is what it means to obey me. I'm giving this to you all, not to the other people. As a matter of fact, most of the law that God created, especially when you get in Leviticus, all the stuff about food disciplines and eating and even sexual morality, a lot of that stuff is is in contrast to what the rest of the nations were doing. God was saying, look, all the stuff that God was saying was like, don't be like them. And you know why? Because I'm sending you to Canaan to be around them, and the temptation for you is to be like them. So he said, here's my law, so you know how not to live. The giving, the temple service. Hebrews tells us that God had them make a temple that was a shadow of the temple in heaven. So God is telling these people to make this temple with these specific requirements and this looks like the temple in heaven that some of you are going to see. The promises. All these promises. God making promises to these people. The ancestors, David and Moses and Abraham and Joseph and all these people, Esther and Samuel and Ruth and All these ancestors. And they all culminate in the Christ. Like Jesus Christ, I chose you people to send my son into the world from. Paul is like, that is a serious reality. God chose this obscure group of people To have his son be born. All of these things represent a unique closeness to God that no one else had. They were exposed to all of this grace of God and did not keep it. I would venture to say they got so familiar with it, they got tired of it. You know the phrase familiarity breeds contempt? You know, when I was a pastor, when I first became a pastor, I had a few people, when I was telling them what I was doing with, my first responsibilities was to lead a group called Light Switch in the church, which were singles and some married couples, and I would hang out with them all the time. We were, I would come into my house all the time, and I remember I had different people say, hey, bro, be careful because you're hanging with them a lot. And I was like, that's what you thought. I mean, Jesus was with the disciples all the time. What do you mean? Like, this is what, and they were like, he was like, man, I see what you're saying, and you're good at it, but he said, but listen, man, familiarity breeds contempt. People get to know you real well, and then they stop looking to you. They start seeing you differently, or you offend them easily. And I was like, man, that was always a battle for me. And it wasn't until I planted this church where that became a reality to me. Once, once we planted it and me and Mike, which is me and Mike, it became a reality to me. A familiarity with God can lead to a contempt of Him. These people were exposed to the grace of God and didn't keep it. There are people in this room that have been exposed to the grace of God. Are you going to keep it? You and I are not exempt. This isn't just about Israel. This is about you and me and you. What are you doing with the grace that you have been given? What are you doing with the faith that he's given to you? What excuses are you making? What well, complaining justifies a lack of pursuit. What should God have done differently in your life to make you more serious about him? How has God failed you? Remember, Paul's writing this not just to them, but to us. And there are people in this room who have been exposed to the grace of God, and I don't know you well enough to know, but I guarantee that someone is not keeping it. Jonah 2.8, one of my favorite verses says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. What are you doing with the faith he's given you? Listen, a lot of us are just a little too comfortable with our Christianity, too satisfied with mediocrity, too too aware of how much you're not a reader. You do not want to stand in front of the word of God and tell him you weren't a reader. We're not talking about legalism. We're talking about holiness. Right. We're talking about holiness. The Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It is. It is far easier than we give it credit to be exposed to the grace of God. I become familiar with it or disappointed in it. And then remove ourselves from it. As if life is so much better without God. Listen, life is hard regardless. You can do it the hard way or the hard way with God. Life is hard regardless. The only thing not believing in God does is deceive yourself into thinking that you can pursue pleasures that you experience now, but there'll be no consequences later. That's all that it does. I I remember having these conversations with people all the time. I used to be like, look, man, they would try to tell me that Christianity is dumb and, man, you ain't doing this. You ain't at the club. You ain't having no fun. I ain't giving up none of that. They would say all these things. And they were some of them were my friends and I'd laugh with them and them. But I would say this, all right, fam, look, if you're right If you're right about what you're saying, then what am I losing? Okay, at best, I ain't getting high no more. I'm not at the club. I don't dance anyway. Gangsters hold the wall up. I don't dance anyway. You might just see me be a little bit like this if I like to join. Gangsters, we lean against the wall. We don't be out there dancing. I wouldn't be dancing anyway. I'd be laughing at everybody else, taking themselves too seriously. I said, look, if you're okay, so I ain't going to the club, I ain't getting high, I ain't doing a couple things. But I'm relatively living a decent life. So even if what you're saying, I'm wrong, I'm still good. I got a wife that puts up with me. Got a wife that loves me, that I love. I can't believe this woman is married to me. I got three beautiful kids that love their dad that I love all right, good, I'm not on the pound no more, but that's about it if, I, if you're right and I'm wrong. And then I say this, but if I'm right and you're wrong, then you have an eternal punishment waiting for you for all this fun that you're having right now. Because believe me, the first three letters of funeral spell fun and you are going to die, brother. These are exact words I've said to friends of mine and the conversation shifts. There's a tonal change. Because if you're right, I'm not losing that much. I'm still good. But if I'm right, you lose everything. What are you doing with the grace that God has exposed you to. It is your responsibility. Listen, theology doesn't excuse you. I've had people tell me, well, I guess I'm just not one of the elect, I'm just not, I guess I'm not electing. I've had people tell me that, and my first response is, why are you not disappointed at that? Like, if that's true, that's not like something to celebrate, fam. Or I've had people worry about, man, how do I know I'm a Christian? What what if I'm not elect? Let me tell you something. When you worry about that, that means you believe. The people that don't believe aren't worried about those types of things. Theology doesn't excuse us. Paul is not angry at God. And Paul is not struggling with the fact that God hardens hearts because he understands that God doesn't harden hearts of people that love him. A bruised reed, he will not break. There's no one that genuinely wants to believe in God that he's giving you the Heisman Trophy, the stiff arm. No. God hardens the hearts of those or he allows the hearts to be further hardened for those who do it, who have no desire to love God. Ironically, everything that the Israelites were given, apart from one or two things in this list, apply to every one of us who genuinely believe in Jesus. Apply to every single one of us. And we're going to pick up here next week as we work through the reality of God choosing, people rejecting, God allowing that to take place, and people struggling with that. Apart from the temple service, And the giving of the law and being an Israelite, unless you're Jewish by birth, all the rest of this list applies to us. Because as we'll see next week, the children of Abraham are Abraham through the promise. We're we're like people who imitate Abraham's faith in God by believing God and it being credited to us as righteousness. What are you doing with the faith that God gave you? Grace is amazing, but it's not so amazing that you can do whatever and there be no consequences for it. As difficult as it can be sometimes, and as challenging as some particular areas are than others, God knows, he knows, he knows how we are made. Psalm 103, 10 through 14 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. For he remembers, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so God forgives our transgressions. For he knows how we are made, that we are only dust. Romans 9 is about to get serious. I would recommend that we get serious too. Let's pray. Father, your word is so many things at so many different moments. It is exhilarating at times, encouraging at times, discerning all the time. Serious, funny. But all of it's you. It's all you. It's from you. I pray that as we wrestle with the concept of you choosing people or, or hardening people's hearts. This is always the one area where people struggle the most with somehow you're not a good God. To some people, because of the theology that we're going to explore throughout the rest of this passage. Father, I pray that you would help us to embrace the truth of Scripture. Help us to have even the, the faith that those are, that the ancestors of old had. They didn't wrestle with the reality that you harden hearts and men are responsible for hardening their hearts. There are things that we, you do not let us understand as cleanly as we would like. But we don't, well, we don't have faith because we understand everything. We have faith because we believe in the one who understands everything. So Father, your word is amazing. It's true. I also pray, Lord, that there would be some righteous, godly anguish, in our own souls for people that we love. And even though the option, no one would take the option to give up their own salvation for someone else's, but that option is not available. It's not a, it's not a theological possibility. So we don't have to try to, to have that perspective, but Lord, let there be anguish in our heart for the world that we see. Let there be anguish in our heart for the way that we see the church, whether it's believers online or friends that we have, just, just out of pocket, Lord, may we be less bold about our personalities and more bold about you being the, Jesus being the personification of truth and reality. Help us to have genuine anguish that leads us to pray for and speak to others and tell them as awkward as that can be. Lord, may our life not consist of comfort, the dodging of suffering, and the excitement of the buffering of our Wi-Fi, but may it be peppered with with what you say in this word, with your word here. May it be peppered with distress and affliction. May it be peppered with persecution and famine and nakedness. Not because we want those things, but because in the midst of those things, we learn to trust that these circumstances don't separate us from your love. And if I need that, Lord, those circumstances to believe that, then I trust you to bring them in my life and our lives In a way that glorifies you. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.